Hello everyone, welcome to God Talk with Tara. I am Tara. Um, this is a beautiful night and I'm going to begin with prayer as we always begin with prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and for your grace and for your love. I thank you for your help today, Father, in doing the things that you needed us to do today. Um, and I pray for your help tomorrow, Lord, in doing the things that you desire for us to do, including, Lord, being still in your presence. Tomorrow, Father, is Sabbath for many of us. It is Sunday where we gather together to rejoice in your presence, to celebrate, to worship, to cry out in repentance and, and need for forgiveness. So, Lord, I pray that as your spirit has been pouring out on your people, as you have been drawing your people to you, I pray that your children tomorrow, Father, will find themselves at your altar. I pray that we would find ourselves, Father, bowing down to you low so that we would be prostrate before you, Lord God. I pray that you would search our hearts, that you would search our minds, that you would Root out the things, Father God, that trouble us. Because the truth is, Father, that sins trouble us. And Christ tells us not to let our hearts be troubled because he has overcome the world. So, Father, I pray that you would root out the things that trouble our hearts and minds as we come before you tomorrow. I pray that we would be able to allow you to pull those out, Father, and keep them as we go back from the altar and to our seats and to our homes and to our communities, Lord, and that we would carry the refreshing of being relieved of our burdens of being perfected in your love. I ask that you would do this for your children, God. And we ask in Jesus' name and by your spirit and all for your honor and glory, Lord. So as I was contemplating what I was supposed to talk about today, it's Saturday, so I don't usually do seed bed with my son on Saturdays. It's usually a Monday through Friday thing. But I clicked on the link to the email today anyway and realized that for the Linton series, it is actually going Monday through Saturday. I don't know if it's going to have a Sunday or not. Probably not because Sundays are usually a not part of the 40 days of Lent in most um, communities that celebrate Lent. So... I was looking at that and we're still in the passage in Luke in the seedbed um, study, but that wasn't the passage that jumped out at me as I was reading it. Now I read through it and it connected me back to yesterday and the love of God and a conversation I was having last night. So I've mentioned that I'm in seminary and currently I am taking two classes in apologetics. One of them is called Faith and Reason. And for that class, I had to speak to a non-Christian about various things um, to do with how they felt about the need for evidence for their beliefs and um, what they thought about the evidence for Jesus being an historically, a historically real person. And if they would want to know um, if there was evidence for Christ as a real person and the resurrection. Now, I have to say I was woefully unprepared 
to take advantage of that particular conversation because when the answer to that last question is yes, I would want to know, it would be a good thing to have all your ducks in a row and all that information on hand. And it's been a little while since I've read through that. I know there actually is a great deal of historically relevant evidence that Jesus Christ not only was a real person, but that he also was crucified was buried and raised from the dead. There is a great deal outside, not just not just in the biblical accounts, although the majority of it is in the biblical accounts, but even when you consider that, the biblical accounts themselves are extraordinarily reliable historical accounts when we are talking about ancient historical documents. There is so much evidence for the historicity of what is written in scripture in the historical section. So please keep that in your head. Um, there's a lot of confusion that goes around when we talk about taking the Bible literally. We should always take the Bible literally as in it was written by men through the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and Therefore, it was stewarded by God to say exactly what he wants it to say. And it is a true and accurate book. But, and, and don't pillory me because this is not what, what you're going to hear um, in your brain when I say but. But there are different genres of literature in the scriptures. And so... You cannot sit and say that the scripture is all literally true when Jesus himself was not speaking literally when he began telling parables about lost sheep or lost talents or needing bread dough and it being like the Pharisees. Um, the reality is, is there are a wide variety of literary styles and genres in scripture. So when we say that the Bible is accurate, as in a scientific historical sense, what we're talking about in scripture are the historical narratives of scripture. So when we look at the book of Acts and we look at the gospels and we look at books like Chronicles and Samuel and First um, and Second Kings, what you find is that those are historical accounts of things that happened. They are recordings in a narrative style of events that occurred, and that is the way that they are presented. So you actually see a lot of that in Deuteronomy and in Numbers and in Exodus. Most of the first five books of the Bible are historical narrative. Um, now there is obviously some possibility that there are actually not really I was going to say that there are embellishments but there's really not if you look at scripture there are some instances of, of uh, poetic language so when we talk about you know the enemy looking like they're riding on hornets and stuff like that that's probably a little bit of, of poetic wording in the way things are described, but they're not embellishments on the actual events that happened. 
And what you see in scripture is actually remarkably non-embellished in the way that it is told. It does not read like myth. It reads like events that are being told. There's too much of the weird mundane details for it to be mythology. And there's too much corroboration through other things for it to be mythology. So when you look at things like the flood, there is evidence of a flood. There is a flood story in many of the other religions of the world. And the reason for that is because there is evidence of a flood that covered a very large portion of the planet. Um, when you look at things like the story of Moses parting the Red Sea and God drowning Pharaoh's army behind the Israelites, what you find is there's evidence that there was a point in time when the Red Sea was parted and there is debris from a, an Egyptian army at the bottom of the Red Sea that corroborates that such a thing probably happened. Um, and you see that repeatedly. You find documentation in other cultures of various people and events that are named in the Bible. As we've done more archaeological digs in the Middle East, you've seen um, excavation of what appears to be Potiphar's house from the story of Joseph. Um, you and and there's you can go on and on. If you want to find details about that, you can look up. Uh, I haven't done a search actually to be able to tell you, but I imagine if you searched uh, archaeological proof of scripture, you would probably find a very long list of things that have corroborated stories in scripture as being accounts of historical things. So it's important for us to know that. And I'm not and that was sort of the foundation of the conversation that we were having. I didn't mean to go off on that sidetrack there, but I have a feeling God had that there for a reason too. So I was having a conversation with my daughter's boyfriend who is here, and we were discussing evidences for scripture, and we were discussing why evidence is important and why reason is important in our faith, because that is the class that I'm taking. And I had to do an interview. And as we finished this interview, because I'm supposed to be interviewing somebody who is not a Christian, when we finished this interview, my daughter actually asked me a couple of questions, one of them being what kind of what I was studying and why. And the other was, if I was Wesleyan, that that what what was my denomination? And I had to stop for a minute because that was really where God wanted me to go tonight. And I didn't realize that last night. But as I was contemplating to write up that interview for the, the actual assignment, I was contemplating the concept of being filled with the love of God and the purpose of being filled with the love of God in some of what we talked about last night. And I, I started to think about what does that look like as far as Wesleyanism? Why am I Wesleyan? And I've been asked this before. My mom asked me why I wanted to be a Methodist because she's very aware of the, the things going on with the United Methodist Church and the schism that's been going on and the presenting issues for all of that. Um, and she doesn't 
really understand why I would be drawn to that particular expression of Christianity. And I have to say, if I'm honest, it would be a lot easier to be something else. <laughs> In the midst of the turmoil that is going on, um, it would be easier to be something else. But the reality is there is a reason that I am a Wesleyan. And so as I'm asked by these non-Christians who have no idea about denominationalism and, and particularly Wesleyan denominationalism, um, the gentleman has some some concepts of, of the history of religion. So there's the understanding of the Reformation being, you know, the break from Roman Catholicism. But all of the trickle down from the Protestant movement is gobbledygook to most people who haven't studied church history. And it is not entirely understandable to the people who have studied church history. So for somebody to say, why are you Wesleyan? What does that mean? Because that was the question is, what does it mean to be Wesleyan? <laughs> I had to think about that and explain why it is that I am not something else in how I follow scripture. And there's a reason that this is important because another person said to me today that I, it's more important to me to be a Christian than it is to be a Methodist. And I will say that that is utterly and absolutely true for me as well, that I, I am far more interested in following God faithfully than I am in following a particular denomination. But there is a, a reason why, as I follow God, he continuously draws me back to Wesleyan expressions of faith. And it comes back to the scripture that we were looking at yesterday. Because what the distinctive of Wesleyan teaching is, what makes it different and distinct and important and vital what Wesley himself said was the reason that God had called apart the, the Wesleyan movement or the people called Methodist, as he puts it, um, their grand depositum <laughs> is the idea of Christian perfection, the idea of being perfected in love. That is the core of why I am Wesleyan and nothing else and why I do not settle in the other congregations that I've been in. It's not that I don't function there and I don't love God there and I don't believe they love God because none of that's true. It is that there is a gaping hole in the taught and practiced theology of most other Protestant religions, at least, and to a large degree, the Catholic religion as well, that is biblical in nature. So I'm going to look at the scripture real quick, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that is and why it's important. Um, so in 1 John chapter 4, about halfway down, I don't have my verses turned on, so... Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Um, so I'm going to stop there. And, and John goes on to talk about the perfecting of love, that love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And that is where we're going to actually stop, because this is the concept that you see this throughout scripture. Paul talks about this a lot in, in Romans as well, and it's often taken as Paul proclaiming, at least in the Reformed churches, it's taken as Paul proclaiming that he is still a sinner and constantly being tossed to and fro by the battle in his flesh between his flesh and the spirit, and that he is constantly wavering. So if you look and you read Romans, I understand where they get this thought. Um, I think it's chapters like five through seven, where, where he's having that back and forth about this constant battle in the flesh that goes on. But he ends that discourse, which is a, a rhetorical form that was very common at the time. And it is rhetoric. It's a, it's a back and forth um, imaginary conversation where Paul poses a question and then answers it and poses another and then answers it. And he culminates this rhetorical conversation with who will save me? Thank God for Jesus Christ. And so the end of this building pressure that Paul is, is building this picture of a person who is constantly being torn between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit and, and walking in the grace and love of God and being pulled backwards under the spell of sin. At the end of that conversation, when he reaches the climactic point and he cries out, who will save me? He answers that with, Thank God for Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ will save me and set me free from that constant back and forth. And so that's the Wesleyan understanding of that passage in Romans. And having read it after sitting under uh, some folks that were more reformed in their ideology and, and some other folks that were more Pentecostal in their ideology, I've come to the conclusion that it makes the most sense when you read it that way, that this is a building rhetorical tool that Paul is using to point to the power, the liberating power of Jesus Christ in our here and now. And this is, this is echoed here in first John. Okay. So here in first John, we come to this point where it says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
Now, in our minds, we think of that simply as eternal life in heaven, but that's not actually what it says here. And a little bit later, it also says, ah, uh, where was that? By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear, but perfect love casts out fear. So what John is saying here is that the love of God was to send Jesus Christ so that we could live through him. Now he connects this with that no one has ever seen God phrase goes back to John, the gospel in like, I think it's 14 where Jesus is talking, it's before he comes into his high priestly prayer, and he's talking about, um, no one has ever seen the Father except through me, but you've seen the Father. He's like, Philip is like, show us the Father. And he's like, have I been you with you this long that you don't know that you've seen the Father? And he goes on to talk about the greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, that Jesus himself is going to send the Holy Spirit, the helper to come and to dwell in you as you love him and he loves you and the father loves you, that the father is going to come to him and he and both the father are going to come and make their dwelling in you here and now, and you will have your life through them. Okay. So John is connecting this passage here in 1 John back to parts of the gospel where he talks. The other place that this connects to is that very first passage of John that I love. It makes me cry when I read it. Um, that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world and he was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then we get down to that next little bit at the bottom. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen the father. The only God who is at the father's side he has made him known. And what John is saying here is that Jesus came to make the Father known to us so that we could see the Father. So he's connecting us back to that very beginning where it tells us that in the beginning, the word was with God and he was the flat or in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made and in him was life. And the light was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has no overcome it. Now, when we picture all of these bits and pieces of imagery, what John brings across is the idea that the light of Christ in us overcomes the darkness of the world. It overcomes the darkness of sin. It overcomes the darkness of our own hearts, minds, and souls that have been 
in bondage to sin and no longer are. That the light of Christ who was in the beginning, we have our life and breath and movement in him. In him, he holds all things together in the here and the now. This is not a heaven thing. This is a now thing here in this world. Jesus came so that we might live through him in the here and in the now. And this is the critical understanding of why I am a Wesleyan. Because when you preach a gospel to people that says you are a sinner, you are broken, that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and disobeyed, they broke all of creation. And they made it so that every human being now has the seeds of wickedness and evil in them because they understand good and evil from what Adam and Eve did. And that they have the seeds of pride and rebellion in them. And that those seeds will grow and there's nothing you can do about that. That that is the state of humanity. That's the concept of total depravity, that there is nothing in us that not that is not tainted by that original fall of Adam and Eve. It's not about what we do. It is about the reality that the image of God in us has been marred. And as a result of that, we are no longer able to be in direct communion with God. And without that communion with God, we are not capable of goodness on our own. We require God for that. We are designed to be image bearers of God who carry the life and the breath of the indwelling spirit of God in us. That's what we're designed for. And without that, we are not capable of goodness. That is what we preach. And that is what scripture teaches. So don't hear me. I'm not saying that that is not true. That is what the Bible tells us. It is what it preaches from Genesis is that mankind is fallen and broken and unable to bridge the gap. They are unable to reach God. And it must be that God moves first, that he must move toward us in order for us to be saved. And that was Jesus. He moved toward us. And in that promise though, if you skip over what comes next, this part here that John is talking about, then the gospel becomes, you are a wicked and evil creature. Jesus came to adopt you into the kingdom of God and his blood atones for all of your sins, but you are still subject to sin in this world. You will continue to go on sinning. You cannot escape the weight of your sin until you're dead. And then the gospel becomes not about the here and the now, but it becomes about heaven. And I know that that, what I just said, is very much an oversimplification of some very complicated theological thoughts. But when it all boils down to the average person sitting in the pews and the average person that you are preaching the gospel to, that is the message of most other 
teachings. That is the message that comes through in most Reformed teaching. It's the message that comes through in most Calvinist and Neo-Calvinist teaching. It is the message that comes through in Roman Catholic teaching. In most teaching, we are taught that we will always be captive to sin until we shed our mortal coil and move on from this world. That is not what my Bible says to me. And quite frankly, it is not a very good news to people. We live in a world that is drowning in bondage. It's drowning in bondage to sin. It's drowning in bondage to finances. It's drowning in bondage literally to one another, whether that is sexual deviancies that are going on or whether it is literal human trafficking and slavery. We live in a world that is drowning in bondage. All of us outside of Christ feel the weight of the chains on us, particularly the chains of our sins and our addictions and our brokenness. And for me to say to somebody that Jesus Christ is their savior, but you have to wait till you die to be saved. And in the meantime, by the way, you need to struggle to be a better person is not biblical. It's not biblical and it's not good news. It tells them that they are broken and stuck in their sin and that there's no hope. That is not a Christian outlook. It's not a biblical outlook. And this is where I get that from. This passage in 1 John and, and the looking at Jesus. And the looking at Jesus as he did what the Father wanted him to do, despite the fact that he was a human being just like us. He was able to walk sinless, not because... He was some Superman. That's actually one of the things that the Bible is very clear about is that he was fully human. He was fully prone to the same kind of brokenness that we are capable of. He just was not chained by it because of the Holy Spirit in him from conception, that the Holy Spirit dwelt in him from the beginning and filled the space that the Spirit was designed to, to fill, allowed Jesus Christ to resist temptation, to resist the slavery to sin that it enslaved all of the rest of mankind. And as a result, we have an example of what it looks like to walk a righteous life, not just morally good, but walk a life in tune with God, connected constantly and continuously with God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was what that is, and he tells us that we are able to do that in the here, in the now, in this world, not simply in the next. He tells us that repent for the kingdom of heaven is near now, not in some distant time and not even soon, but it's at hand now. And that we are able to walk in the reality of the power of the kingdom of God now. Now, a lot of times the other flip side of, of, of ideologies and, and theologies is that it's that 
God's grace is, is everything and there is no change to it. And that's not the one I want to go to, but this other one that we walk in the power of God. And it's all about what God is going to do for us. And that's not what we get the picture of here either. The power of God does amazing things through his people. Don't get me wrong. I am fully expectant that as we walk in the power of God, there will be miracles and signs and wonders that follow us because the manifest presence of God is with us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. He's still making that manifest among us. Jesus Christ is still in the world through his Holy Spirit, and he still manifests himself to us and in us and through us. And so we will see the manifestations of God in the world around us, but that is not the point of what God did in Jesus Christ. What God did in Jesus Christ was to liberate us. In the perfection of his love, in the indwelling of his love, in the indwelling of his preferences within us that shape us and cause us to reflect him and his preferences and bring us to completion through the fullness of him inside of us, we are able to walk free from the bondage of sin and offer that freedom to those who are trapped and dying in the darkness of this world. Greater is he who is in you now, not in some future time. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that is also in one of these passages. I think it's from the John, um, I want to say that one is from John 14, but I might be wrong. No, I'm sorry. It's in this one, 1 John 4. It's just a little bit higher up than where we were reading. The Bible paints a picture of the love of God as the power that liberates us from wickedness, liberates us from sin, liberates us from death and anxiety. And the death that it liberates us from is not the physical death of this world. It is the spiritual death that we are bound in to begin with. But he liberates us from that spiritual death right here and now. It doesn't wait until after you're dead. That spiritual death is reversed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that spiritual death being reversed, you have no obligation to follow sin in your life anymore. You have the power of the Holy God, the fullness of the love of God, the fullness of the preferences of God and the image of God in you to fight against sin for you. The wrath of God being unleashed against sin is not necessarily the wrath of God being released against people. It is oftentimes the wrath of God that holy, righteous wrath being rele released against the sin that binds you to destroy it and allow you to be free. But you have to be willing to walk in the fullness of Christ. And that is why I am a Wesleyan, because that is what we preach. We preach being perfected in love. That is the unique Wesleyan doctrine that carries into the world, not 
what is oftentimes preached these days, which is free grace and you never have to change and God accepts you just the way you are. That isn't it. It's that God will come to you exactly where you are covered in your mess and muck and sin. And he will cover you in the blood of Jesus Christ. And in so doing the life, the light that is the life of the world will flow over you and in you and through you and wherever it does, it will cast out the death and the dying and the darkness in you. It will cast out the fear. It will cast out the sin. It will cast out the bonds that hold you and it will make you new and allow you to live in this world free as you go about rescuing others from their darkness and their chains. Now that, my friends, that is good news. Father God, I thank you for the grand depositum of John Wesley. I thank you for the opportunity to think about the things I believe and the things we believe and why we believe them. I thank you for the opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ with someone who does not believe. Um, I pray that a seed was planted that will cause thoughts to come and eventually, Father, that will lead them to the joy and the freedom and the love that they can find in you. Father, you are awesome and amazing. We thank you for the love that you have shown us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for your spirit that dwells in us, Lord God, and gives us the ability to walk in the fullness of your love and of your life. I ask that you would pour that out on your people tomorrow, that you would bring a fresh anointing and a fresh wind on all of us, Lord God, as we seek to go out and carry that good news to everybody we meet. We meet. We ask in Jesus' name, all for your honor and glory, Lord. Amen. Be blessed.